Well, this is a, a lengthy but really significant passage, and if you flick back a page to where we started, you'll see what the passage is all about, because it comes up in one of the early verses in verse 28. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders come to Jesus, and they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? And this passage is all about the authority of Jesus. Now, it's often commented that we're in an authority crisis in Western culture at the moment, where we don't accept authority. The traditional institutions that authority used to come from, whether they be the government or political parties or even the church, have been eroded, and we no longer trust them, and we no longer accept their authority. I sometimes quote a bit of graffiti that was written um, on the wall of a university campus in the US um, in the late 1980s that said, we used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. We used to trust the generals, but Vietnam changed all that. We used to trust the scientists, but Three Mile Island changed all that. Now we have no one to trust. And you could write a same poem or bit of graffiti, not that I'm recommending that, um, for our current generation, can you? You could substitute in, you know, Watergate for Brexit, um, Vietnam for Iraq, Three Mile Island for global warming. Take your pick. You know, institutions which we used to trust have been eroded. We no longer accept their authority. And one of the things that happens is when authority is eroded, then it collapses into power. In other words, when you no longer think someone has the right to govern or the right to tell you what to do or the right to speak to you about how life should be lived, then it merely becomes who has the power to force you to do something. And this is really where our society is at. Let me give you an example which is um, poignant to me. A few months ago, I was out on the estate that we live in, um, uh, just near Old Street, and there are lots of signs on our estate saying no cycling on the estate, and there are kind of cycle defenders, you know, the, the maze to kind of put cyclists through to get them off the bike, and usually because little children, like my own children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, are running around and playing, so it's just dangerous. And my children had just gone inside, and I was just tidying up after them, and a, a kid who was like 13 years old on a, a mountain bike just kind of came razzing through the estate straight past me, straight past one of the signs. So I kind of gently said to him, I said, look, sorry, do you mind? It, it says no cycling. Would you mind jumping off your bike? And did he say, thanks so much as an adult and me being younger, I accept your authority? No, no, no. He commented on my hairstyle, shut up, Baldy, or something like that. And then he showed how authority collapses into power. What are you going to do about it anyway, he said, as he cycled off. You hear the, hear the narrative? In other words, I don't accept your authority, so it really comes down to your power. Are you going to do anything about it? Obviously not, he said, as he cycled off. There it is. It, interestingly, in God's providence, uh, about a week later, I, I turned the corner of the estate, and the same kid on the same bike literally rode into me. And I suddenly found myself holding his handlebars like that just to stop him, like hitting me, and then looked up and went, you're that kid from the other day, and his kind of like blood drained from his face. And needless to say, he didn't have so much difficulty accepting neither my authority nor my power. At that moment, he actually hopped off his bike and was very polite. And I, don't, I haven't seen him cycling on the estate since. But there it is, you know, authority. Has anyone got the right to have it? And if we are skeptical about authority in our society in general, then particularly when it comes to the religious sphere, and Jesus claimed not just to be a savior, but also to be Lord, and a claim of absolute authority over all spheres of life and all aspects of your life in particular, well, that sits particularly uneasy with us, doesn't it? I'm in charge of my life, my life. I'm the Lord, I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my destiny, not him. So how is it that we can move from seeing Jesus' authority as a threat 
to seeing it as something that is wonderful and life-giving as it is. Well, this passage is all about that. We're going to look, first of all, at the nature of Jesus' authority. Then we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus' authority by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. And then finally, we're going to look at accepting Jesus' authority and how we can do that and how you know, this passage gives us some um, you know, energy to change in that regard. Well, let's look, first of all, at the nature of Jesus' authority. It's just worth getting our bearings on how this passage is structured. It clearly is one, you know, kind of large section because it starts at the beginning with them in verse 27, arriving again in Jerusalem and walking in the temple courts. And then if you flick to the first verse of chapter 13, which will start next week, it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple. So Mark sometimes uses it like a camera angle, a kind of scene setting. This is all set in the temple courts, and we get the main figures at the beginning verses. In verse 27, we get Jesus, and we get the chief priests, the elders, um, and the teachers of the law. So these are the main protagonists, the kind of actors on the stage. And the, the, the whole passage is structured around the parable of the tenants. Mark finds parables really significant, and what he does after the parable is he gives us two examples of people rejecting Jesus' authority and two examples of people accepting Jesus' authority so that we can do the compare and contrast. So that's how the passage is working. And we're going to spend a lot of our time in the parable as we look to those positive and negative, sorry, negative and positive examples. Well, let's look first of all at the nature of Jesus' authority and look with me at the parable of the tenants. Verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. The scene would have been familiar to the people of the day, though slightly alien to us. It's about tenant farmers. So it's common in agricultural societies that you have a landowner who tenants or rents out the farm or the vineyard or the land to tenants who farm it, and then the rental agreement is that they get a share of the profits, a share of the harvest, and the owner you know, gets his share. Very, very common. But look at the care that the man who owns this vineyard takes over his vineyard. He, he plants it, he, he, put a wall, he puts a wall around it to care for it and to shield it. He digs a pit for the wine press so that they can turn grapes into wine and celebration and enjoy the produce. And he builds a watchtower in the middle of it so that they can keep watch over it. So the safety and security of the vineyard is thought about. The care and the provision of the vineyard is thought about. The celebration and the joy of farming the vineyard is thought about. Everything is thought about by the man. And if we knew our Old Testament um, better, then we would know that from Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard is God's people, is Israel. And therefore, the man, the planter, the creator is God himself. And you see the care that this is speaking about, that God has in his authority, the generosity of his provision. He gives us everything. We don't often think this way, but God's generosity is all around us, from the air that we breathe to the finer things in life that we enjoy, fun, food, friends, family, maybe even for some fame or fortune. God gives us everything generous to all of us, and he protects us and keeps us safe. He is a loving and generous God. Not only is his authority therefore generous, but it's also patient. Weren't you struck in the parable by just how almost ridiculously patient the owner of the vineyard is with these awful, awful tenants? 
I mean, he sends at the right time a delegation to, or servants to, pick up the return from the harvest. Totally normal fare. And what do they do? Well, verse 3, they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then notice the escalation, verse 4. He sent another servant. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent still another, and that one they killed. And then this kind of awful pattern of behavior continues with many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. And yet notice throughout it all that the master does not fly off the handle. He patiently sends servants in the vernacular of the parable, these are the prophets sent to Israel calling for fruit, referring back to what we heard from Andy last week, the fruit of godly living, the fruit of the lives that God wants us to live. And he's so patient with them. No flying off the handle, no quick move to smite them or to judge them, giving them every chance to change their behavior, patient to a T. And of course, over hundreds of years, the Lord has been patient, and he's still patient with us Today, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, memorably says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is generous. God is patient in his authority. And also, God is sovereign in his authority. Sovereign, by that I mean that God you know, has a natural authority about him. There's no shrillness of voice. There's no shaking of fists trying to make someone accept his authority. He just is. Jesus Christ just has authority. It's obvious. There's a, a natural weightiness to him. Sometimes in life, you meet people who kind of have a, a shadow, a, a kind of a, a foreshadowing of this. I remember a number of years ago in 2014, I went to the Barbican Jazz Festival just down the road, and um, one of my jazz heroes, a guy called Hugh Masekela, he died a few years later, and it was a great privilege to see this man who was called the godfather of modern jazz, you know, in the flesh, see him performing. Uh, he had campaigned against apartheid in South Africa. He'd been a key figure in campaigning for the release of Nelson Mandela, and just a remarkable musician blending jazz with African music, um, and a great privilege to see him. One of the things that struck me as we went to the Barbican to watch him was for about the first three or four tracks of his set, he didn't play at all. He introduced his band and they played and they were amazing and they were all like young musicians he had mentored and they just did their thing and they played his music but he just kind of stood there smiling like a benevolent grandfather and we're kind of all there waiting for Hugh Masakela to pick up his trumpet and play and then about the fourth or fifth track, he picks it up and he plays one of his like signature tunes and what was remarkable was we're in a room where everyone of us is enjoying these incredible musicians at the top of their game. And he's mentored them all, and then he picks up his trumpet. And just the comparison was just remarkable. He was so good in comparison to even these amazing musicians. And he didn't need to protest it. He didn't need to shout it. He didn't need to kind of proudly try to push it on us. It was just so obvious. And it just emanated from him, his ability, his warmth, his, yeah, in some right sense, his glory, natural. In sporting terms, we sometimes say that someone has time on the ball. Well, I wonder, as you looked at this passage, didn't you just marvel at Jesus? I mean, here are the finest minds of the day trying to outwit him, and he just outwits them, turning things on his head so easily. It's just easy for him. No one can outsmart him. 
I mean, look at these uh, questions that he's kind of faced with. First of all, we get very early on the passage, this question about authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And in each, I want you to notice how in each of the examples of them trying to test Jesus, he does two things. First of all, he turns the, the kind of tables on them. That is, he uses the rope they've come to bind him up with, and he just tangles them up in it so easily. And he's had no prep, and they've had days to think about their questions, right? And they've kind of got a delegation together to try to scheme and work it out. And on the spot, he just outfoxes them. Secondly, he's such a genius because in each of the answers, he actually gets underneath it and really exposes what the issue going on with. I mean, who could do that just like that? It's remarkable. So they ask him by what authority he's doing these things in verse 28. And he replies annoyingly with a question, but what a great question. I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. If you answer this question, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And now they're torn because, of course, if they say from heaven, it plays into his hands. They accept his divine authority, which they don't want to do. If they say of human origin, well, because they fear John and all the people held that he was a prophet, the people who they care about far too much will turn on them. So they don't say anything. Job done. Just easy for Jesus. And in so doing, notice how he exposes the real issue. What's the nature of your authority? And he says, look, even if I was from heaven, which I am, you don't want to accept that. And so I'll give you a really obvious example, not even about me, about John the Baptist. But they can't bring themselves to do it. So he exposes the problem straight away. Then you get the um, poll tax question. Now, they think this is really going to catch them out because the poll tax, like the kind of term we even shiver a bit when we hear it today, kind of was hated at the time. Um, and it was hated because it was a tax uniquely on Jewish people just for being conquered by the Romans. So talk about rubbing your nose in it. We've conquered you to make it worse. We don't tax the Romans. No, no, no. We tax you poor people that we've conquered. So they hated it. And of course, if Jesus says, don't pay the poll tax, they go straight off to the proconsul and they say, here's this young rebellious rabbi. You better capture him. And so they arrest him. But if Jesus says, do pay the poll tax, the Jews will hate him for it. Aha, clever, right? You can see they spent hours on this one. How's Jesus going to get out of it? Well, very easily. Because Jesus takes a coin, like any coin today, and says, you know, whose image is on it? Caesar's. And then he says, memorably, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's. And it completely confounds him, because he has neither committed to saying, yes, pay the poll tax. He's just said, look, if it's just about giving back to Rome what's from Rome, what does it really matter? He just answers it so brilliantly. But the real issue behind it is very, very important and very significant. Because in biblical thinking, in Genesis chapter 2, we're told, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that every human being is made bearing the image of God. That is, that God has the authority over every human being because we are made by him. We are made in his image. It's like a stamp of beauty and authority as well that God has over us. So when he says, whose image is on the coin, it implicitly raises the question, and whose image is on you? You who are testing me answer God's. And therefore, why won't you accept my authority as divine? You see, it's so clever at a deeper level, and he thinks of this in just a moment. <laughs> and then we come on to the Sadducees, and as you might have learned if you went to Sunday school, they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. Instantly memorable, very cheesy, run with it. It's so bad, I know, it's awful. But also, they only accepted the first five books, the Pentateuch, the, um, the Torah of the Bible. And so they come up with this awful, isn't it embarrassing almost, this convoluted example, you know, like kind of the first man gets married, his wife dies, the second one gets married, seven in total get to heaven, which we don't believe in. Who's he married to? Ha ha, you're not going to get, 
straight away out of this one, are you? God, does he back polygamy? No, no, no. We know he's a monogamous God, so what are we going to do? And Jesus just solves it like this, doesn't he? Straight away. Verse 24, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he cleverly quotes from a passage they would have accepted because they were maintaining that the first five books of the Bible didn't teach the resurrection of the dead. And so by quoting Exodus, doesn't he say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Again, he turns the tables on them instantly and makes them look very foolish. And again, gets to the root of the issue. Verse 24 they're in error. Why? Because they don't really know. That means they don't accept the scriptures and they don't accept the power of God. That's the root cause. You think that's a difficult problem for God as though God was like, oh, I haven't thought that together. Let's get the Trinity together for a management consultancy session and try to work out what we do. Of course God's thought about it, he says, and just solves it like that. But they don't accept his authority. I mean, what do you make of Jesus? It's just so, isn't it just remarkable? No shrillness of voice, no protestation, I am your Lord, how dare you ask these questions to me? He just answers their questions, exposes their hypocrisy, and leaves looking magnificent, generous, patient, sovereign. I wonder, is that your view of God's authority? So often we have this distorted view that God kind of wants our worship because he needs our worship. How needy is God? That is not the God of the Bible. He needs nothing. He's owed, as the sovereign, everything, but he is generous and patient. He's magnificent. So how do people respond then? Well, the tragedy is they respond by rejecting his authority. Let's look secondly at the rejection of Jesus' authority. Firstly, notice how shocking the rejection is. It is shocking that he is being rejected by the very people who should accept him. It is also shocking in the parable, is it not? How they treat the servants is, of course, how they treat the master, and how they treat the master's son. We are supposed to be shocked by it. And the shocking thing particularly about it is not that it's a case of mistaken identity. We've got to get this, because I think we often think, look, God is not very clear with us. I'm not really sure whether he exists or not, and therefore I would just accept his authority if I really knew that he existed. But look at verse 7 of chapter 12. It's not mistaken identity. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. They get his identity. That's the problem. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. In other words, behind the rejection is not ignorance, but rebellion. It's not about ignorance, it's about them wanting the inheritance. How does this work out? Well, what's the inheritance? The inheritance is everything that belongs to God. It's the, the vineyard. It's everything good about the vineyard. It's all his. This is making a very profound point about humanity. Contrary to what we think in Western society, my gifts, my rights, me, my life, I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my destiny, self-actualization, self-fulfillment, you do you. If you don't do you, no one else is going to do you, right? God says, no, my friend, you're a tenant. That is, you really do have some wonderful gifts, but they've been gifted to you. That's the thing with a gift. It's been given to you. You don't own it. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? You didn't create yourself. 
You didn't sit down back in history at some point and say, what type of person would I like to become? I know, I'll give myself these. You just have some gifts and you don't have others. You can accentuate those gifts through hard work, and guess what? That itself is a gift of God itself. He gives you everything from the air in your lungs to the things around you, and yet here they say, mine. Because here's the bottom line. The God who comes and reminds us that it is just a gift we don't say wonderful, how liberating. We say, what a threat. Aldous Huxley, the 20th century philosopher, is quite um, articulate about this. He was a very well-known atheist, and he wrote this in his book, Ends and Means, about his atheism. He said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Do you hear what he's saying? He wanted complete sexual and complete political liberation, so he hypothesized that the world was meaningless and that there was no God. Notice the order. It goes that way, right? It doesn't start with, I've genuinely sought for God, and then I wasn't sure they existed, and then I worked out certain implications. He's very honest, very articulate about it. And so many of us think if God comes to us and just reveals it to us, we'd say, wonderful, now I can believe. But the truth is, deep in our hearts, consciously or unconsciously, we often find the idea of God as a threat. And so we rebel against him. We don't want his authority. We don't accept his authority. And this passage shows us just how foolish that is. First of all, it shows us how foolish it is by the interactions with Jesus to try to resist the authority of a generous, patient, and sovereign God is like King Canute sitting in the sea shouting at the tide as it comes in. You just look very foolish and you will soon be overwhelmed. You can't do it. And so it is with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They try and they look so foolish. But it's also foolish, isn't it, because of what happens in the parable, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When it really comes down to it, God will be patient, but please don't take his patience as meaning that it will never run out. And it's repeated three times in this passage, verse 36 over the page. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God is patient he doesn't force his authority on us, but if we continue to foolishly reject his authority, we are making ourselves his enemies, and we will one day be on the wrong side of history. And verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. God cannot be mocked. So our rejection of his authority is rebellious. It is shocking and it is foolish. So then in comparison, let's look at the acceptance of Jesus' authority from verse 28 of chapter 12 and following. We now get two other instances, and initially with verse 28, you wonder if this is another teacher of the law, same type of person who's coming to test him. But then you see a very different question and a very different response. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, he's not at all saying, because you've asked the right question, so I'm going to let you into heaven. He's just saying that you're seeking. This is a sincere question. This is someone trying to grapple with and accept my authority. 
And what is really interesting is that it's the particular issue that Mark chooses to highlight because the opposite of rebellion, we often think is mere obedience, but it's not. Verse 29, the most important command is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the opposite of rejecting God's authority is not merely to obey his authority, but to love him and to love people made in his image. Why is the opposite of rebellion not mere obedience? Well, it's because of this. There are actually two ways you can reject God's authority. You can reject God's authority by rejecting what he commands. That's very obvious. Everyone sees that. It's kind of the, um, the prodigal son. We all see that. Open rebellion, clearly rejecting God's commands. But the more insidious one, which is more likely inside a church, is we reject God's authority by keeping his commands. That's what the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the elders do, isn't it? They were fastidious about God's commands. We keep them all, they said. But it was hypocrisy. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't done from a love for God or a care for other people. It was done from a position of authority, sorry, a position of um, hypocrisy. And actually, here's how it works. The moment someone comes to challenge you about any area of your life, under, not under God's authority, you say, but I've done all these things. I mean, look how righteous I am. I've done all these things. It's like a great distraction tactic. Yeah, but what about that? Yeah, but don't worry about that. Look at all these things I've done. I'm so obedient. Such a good tactic, isn't it? It's the great switcheroo. Don't look at this, just look at this. And actually, you think to yourself in your own heart, I can keep God at arm's length because I'm doing all these things for you, God. So you don't get to look into that area because of all these things I'm doing for you. You leverage it. You trade on it. Friends, that is not accepting God's authority. That is merely just a very subtle facade for rejecting God's authority which is why the widow is used as an example, because she stands for so much of what the Lord Jesus wants to see. Where there is hypocrisy, here is attractive authenticity. Where there is holding things back from God, here she puts in everything she has, we're told. The scene is striking. Jesus sits across in the court, the outer courts of the temple, and um, in the outer courts they had 12 um, giving kind of um, depositories, which were with brass trumpets. And the idea was that the, um, the teacher of the Lord set it up so that as you put your coins in, it was make as much noise as possible. So you can imagine the money bags, you know, kind of guy coming along, goes to the bank for change before you want. Large denominations? No. Smallest, please, will make the most noise. And then he kind of takes it along, puts it in the trumpet, bang, 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 and everyone's, wow, wow, how generous he is. And he's like, oh, stop it. No, no, no. They just wouldn't give me those bigger denominations, just the small ones again. So annoying. You know, and everyone's looking at him. That's what he wants. But apparently, according to the commentators, there was one of the 12 trumpets which was deliberately designed to not make any sound. We're not told, but I bet that's the one the widow went to. Two little coins. She probably felt embarrassed in comparison to everybody else. It's all she's got, just the two smallest denominations, the two smallest coins, and she puts them in. They don't even make a sound. But isn't it remarkable? Jesus is sitting opposite, and he sees. He sees above all the hubbub. He sees above all of the hypocrisy. He sees straight to her and to her heart. That is what he wants. That is what authenticity looks like. We say that's wonderful, but how can I become like that? One last detail we haven't dealt with. Did you see in the parable of the tenants how there's one bit that doesn't quite fit? 
as the story of the parable of the tenants is being told, don't you, like me, think that the master of the vineyard is more than a little bit reckless with his servants and his son? I mean, after all, if when it comes to it in verse 9, it's easy for him to come and kill those tenants and to overpower them, why doesn't he send that same delegation with every servant and supremely with his son to protect them? If he's got the power to overthrow them easily, I mean, wouldn't a responsible master, once it's done like two or three times, send protection to look after his son? Doesn't he care for his son or his servants? The point is this. He is sent in weakness and vulnerability because, verse 10, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That verse makes no sense unless the whole point of the parable is that the means of rejecting the Son is the way, ultimately, of exalting and accepting the Son. My father-in-law is an architect, and a few years ago, puzzling on this verse, I asked him about cornerstones, and he said, look, the cornerstone is not just the foundational building block for the building. It is also, according to architects, the stone that gives the dimensions to the building. In other words, the cornerstone dictates everything for the building. Get that wrong and you get everything wrong. Get it right, you get everything right. How can you understand God's authority? Would well, you get the cornerstone, the dimensions of the cornerstone? He's the rejected, exalted one. He's the one who dies on a cross for you and for the way you reject his authority. And he dies so that you can accept his authority, so that your heart can be one. He dies for all of the ways we say, no, 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 my life, my life, my life, until with every protestation, we're banging in the nails on the cross. He dies to take the judgment you deserve and I deserve so that we can be forgiven. In the Old Testament, Hosea the prophet is told to take a wife called Gomer who cheats on him. And in ancient society, two things by way of rights for a woman who cheated on a man one, he could divorce her and commit her to public uh, shame. Two, he could command her to come back, and the whole community would have enforced that to come back. Does God say, go and do that for your wife? No, he says, go and win her. Go and woo her. Go and romance her and bring, you back, bring her back to yourself. And God says in chapter 2 of Hosea, I will woo Israel, I will win them back. He doesn't come and force his authority on you. He comes to win your heart. How does he do that? When you see that the Son of God has died on a cross for you, that breaks down the barriers to his authority. That beckons his authority to you. That makes his authority attractive because you think he's not just got every authority, but he also has got my best interest. He's died for me and therefore is no longer a threat. You start to see that he cares about you so much he will die for you. Is there anything he won't do for you? and it breaks down the hardness of your heart. As I close, where do you stand with God's authority? It's normal in a room like this that many of us, probably in unconfessed areas, will know as I say this that there is one area at least of my life where I'm holding out to God, probably where I'm saying, God, I've done all these things. And even some of your friends have been talking to you about it, and you've been saying, I've done all these things. Maybe by the Spirit, he's putting his finger on that right now. Do you see it as a threat? You say, I've got the key, I won't let you in because I don't know what you'll do. He says, my friend, I died for you. My authority is generous, it is patient, it is sovereign. Let me in and wait to see the renewal that will come in that area if you'll just let me in. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this picture 
this real historical picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a sovereign Lord he is and how amazing his authority is. Wherever we're at, Lord, on the spectrum of thinking about Jesus to coming to Jesus to living with and for Jesus, Lord, you know we grapple with this. And so help us to see Jesus' authority as life-giving and as good news. Help us to rejoice in him and who he is and what he's done for us. And might that renew and change our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.